listening to the coffee hour i'm andy bates i'm pastor james cleland it is almost february 14th oh no i forgot to get a gift yes <laughs> it's, today's friday february 11th and so you have just what really about two days left yeah i better that. i better do that prime <laughs> prime now we'll take care of it <laughs> um we're really actually going to dig into the history of this particular day and it's i think it's way deeper than just flowers and cards and gifts we'll find out though in just a moment thanks to concordia university wisconsin for supporting the coffee hour find out more about concordia university wisconsin at cuw.edu live Live uncommon Hey, hey, you remembered. We are joined today by the Reverend Dr. Joel Ilowski, Professor of Historical Theology and Coordinator of International Seminary Exchange Programs at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Dr. Ilowski, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Oh, thanks. It's good to be with you. So Monday, February 14th, is the uh, the day that the Church commemorates Valentine, the, the martyr. Why does the Church commemorate him today? Well, that's an interesting question. I've asked myself that on occasion, too, in the sense of what we do on Valentine's seems to have very little uh, to do with his life, um, at least at first glance. And and by the way, I'm going to be out of town during Valentine's Day, so I have to get a really good gift for my wife. But yeah, so when you think about uh, Valentine, um, we uh, think about Valentine's Day, we think about cards, flowers, all of that. Um, but of course, as, as you mentioned, I mean, the reason why the church celebrates, uh, commemorates him is because of his martyrdom and his faithfulness to the church and to the life of faith. I mean, that that is, I should say, the initial reason why uh, he got on the church calendar, shall we say. So um, I think as you look at uh, his life and you look at his service in the church, you see someone who was was faithful even unto death and has received the crown of life. And so uh, these are, you know, people that we need to celebrate in the life of the church uh, because of uh, the willingness to be faithful even to that point, which we hope most of us are not called to, but it could be so. <clears throat> so what time period did, did Valentine live? And, and what do we know about that time period? What was it like to be a Christian then? Yeah, well, it's an interesting time in the life of the church, for sure. This was, of course, before the time when Constantine came on the scene and made uh, the church a uh, a legal religion. Of course, he didn't um, make it the religion of the empire until that happened under Theodosius I. But uh, you've got this period in the third century that uh, the church is still what we would call an illicit religion, which basically means it's an illegal religion. So there were certain religions that Rome recognized as legitimate, and like Judaism, for instance, or uh, some of the, the pagan cults. But Christianity, at least at this time, would not have been considered a legal religion that <clears throat> you should be attending. It's kind of like the church in China in some ways. I look at there's a, although the church is legal in China, there's another branch of it that, you know, kind of goes underground, shall we say, and is not considered. I mean, you have to be registered kind of thing. But you had the previous emperor, the, well, because, because, um, Valentine was, well, he was martyred under Claudius II. Claudius had a very short reign. He he reigned from about 268 to 270, so that's not very long, although in Roman emperor terms, it might be considered a longer period of time since sometimes they had four emperors uh, in one year. So it wasn't real good job security, shall we say. But you have, before Claudius was emperor, there was another emperor named Valer- Valerian also the second. And uh, Valerian, 
persecuted the church. Well, yeah, he did. In fact, even before him, there was the persecution kind of empire-wide persecution uh, that was um, initiated by Decius. That's probably the most famous persecution because it was uh, so devastating to the church. And in fact, you get bishops like Cyprian and others writing about what do you do if you gave in during that time of persecution. And see, you know, Previously, most of the persecutions had been kind of local things that you might have ticked off your neighbors or you might have ticked off a government official and uh, Christians in certain areas could get would be persecuted. But once you start talking about the second half of the third century, which is the time in which uh, uh, Valentine martyred, then you're talking about a different thing. At least, at least in the 260s, we should, I would say in 270s, um, when Diocletian comes on, on stage and later in the, that, um, I guess it was around the 280s or so, then Christianity kind of fares okay for at least a little while. So one of the things that Valerian did was he forbid, he forbid Christians from holding assemblies because they figured that was subversive uh, to the empire. He also uh, didn't allow them to uh, meet underneath, you know, the ground uh, and subterranean places for burial. He actually, there was a prescription against that, but uh, probably the most difficult of all was that he had sent clergy into exile. And he made this uh, decree around 257. So if we figure that um, you've got 258, you've got a, an edict ordering instant death for anyone who was a bishop, presbyter, or a deacon, um, it's looking like a pretty difficult time in the life of the church, I suppose. So uh, I suppose 10 years later, these things were still going on you know, in the life of the church, although different emperors, you know, or had different policies. Uh, in between, you get some people who um, actually seem to favor Christians even. But I would say when Claudius came on the scene, it was he was probably doing many of the same kind of um, policies that uh, Valerian had introduced. So. <clears throat> okay. So I'm aware of some late medieval, I think, legends about St. Valentine, but what do we actually know about him was it was he a bishop was he a, a pastor what, what do we know for sure yeah, i was gonna say yes to those <laughs> because he actually was both i mean it depends on which which tradition you look at I, we do know that he was probably a one idea was that he was a bishop in Tierney, which um, is outside of Rome. Um, but there's another idea that he was perhaps a, a presbyter or a, what we would call a pastor in Rome, too. So I would probably say some combination of the two. He was he was most likely some type of a church leader. And there are those who think that he also may have been similar to Luke. He may have been a physician, so he might have had some skills that way, too. And at least with uh, the commemorations we have, if you go to Rome, you can, you can um, see there is some some kind of commemorations of him there that would probably say he might have been a bishop and then a priest. I mean, sorry, the other way around, a priest and then a bishop in the life of the church. So I think that's probably about all we can uh, say. We don't know too much else that way. <clears throat> but he, uh, well, I should say that he may have, one of the things that they say about him is that he might have, well, he might have been making or performing marriages in secret. This was a time, um, this is a legend, I mean, we don't know for sure, but there was this idea that under Claudius II, um, there was a possibility that uh, he had forbidden marriage, in, at least in among uh, soldiers, because he needed to have, recruit soldiers for the army who wouldn't have any, shall we say, split allegiance. Um, and I suppose there was also the idea that, that uh, you, uh, if you were married, you could get exempt from military service. So the fact that a bishop would be performing marriages like that in secret could have been one of the reasons um, perhaps he was uh, 
targeted, but we have to say that that is just kind of a, a tradition that it's difficult to say whether that was a reason. I guess it's hard to come by lots of resources or lots of sources from that era. To, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so he served as a, a priest a, or a bishop, possibly. A, anything else about his service to the church that that was significant? Well, I mean, there is a tradition that he also was had the ability to heal, so he may have been a healer. Uh, and there's some um, some tradition that he healed this boy who was on I found on the side of the road. But the fact that that he's living well, that he's living in Rome or, or close to it, he was kind of pretty much at the center of a lot of the life of the church, because the Roman church was known for its helping out of other dioceses and things, especially those that were affected by famine and, and plague and other things. So well, he probably um, would have had some type of service that way in the life of the church, too, that he would have been responsible for, I suppose. But other than that, it's difficult really to, to say. Yeah, I wish I wish we had more information about him. Usually you could find stuff in like, let's say, Jerome's Lives of Illustrious Men, but he's not listed in that. There is a martyrology that was attributed to Jerome, but it probably wasn't in the 5th century that includes him. So we do know... Um, that he was considered a martyr by the fifth century. Uh, we've, we've of course got, well, there's, let's see, which bishop is it? Who am I thinking of? He had actually included him in his observations or celebrations of saints, but I'm trying to remember who that was. I'm drawing a blank. Sorry about that. What was that from Pastor Whedon celebrating the saints? Yeah, there, that's, he got it from them. Actually, it was Pope Glazius that I was thinking of. That's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Pastor Whedon, uh, Pope Glazius, kind of similar guys. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do we, do we know what led up to his martyrdom? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's a $5,000 question or even 64000 I suppose, because as I mentioned, you have those those targeted kind of persecutions that are happening in the mid-third century. And because when you get, like I said, with the Decian persecution, it was more empire-wide, and they would they would round up people, or they would, oh, well, asking them to offer incense to the emperor and these things. But these later persecutions that were more episodic, like with, as I mentioned, with Valerian or with Galaz with um, uh, Claudius, it does seem to be that they were targeting clergy. So you get this idea that that they recognized that these leaders of the church were people who, that the, the people were loyal to them. And so somebody like Cyprian, for instance, who was martyred in 258, he was, he, he survived the Decian persecutions because he fled. But then later in 258, when they approached him again, and again, this was focused towards the leaders of the church, he acquiesced and was martyred for his faith. But it was because they were targeting these, these pastors that I think, there could be a possibly a similar argument for Valentine. If he was indeed a bishop, it could have been a similar type of targeting. And perhaps because of the, the well, the marriages that he was performing, although that's, um, again, legend, but uh, it could be that that might have been one reason, or just the fact that he was a prominent leader in the church, that uh, they saw, here's somebody who needed to be silenced, and he was targeted for that. But I have to, you know, admit that ultimately, the we don't have any text that tells us for sure. We do know how he was martyred. He was he was tortured, he was uh, beaten with clubs, and, and beheaded, which means he was probably, well, it doesn't mean he was probably, he was a Roman citizen. Uh, so, so he would have been a, a prominent enough person that he drew attention to himself. And um, that's um, probably about all we can say at this point. 
We're learning about Valentine the Martyr with the Reverend Dr. Joel Ilowski, Professor of Historical Theology and Coordinator of International Seminary Exchange Programs at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Pastor James Cleveland. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Pastor James Cleland. We are talking about Valentine the Martyr, who is commemorated by the church on February 14th. It's coming up in just a few days. And uh, there are some other things that happen on that day as well. We'll talk about those in just a moment as well. Hopefully you have a chance to get those uh, preparations in order for Valentine's Day on Monday. We're talking with <laughs> Reverend Dr. Joel Ilowski, Professor of Historical Theology and Coordinator of International Seminary Exchange Programs at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Now, before we went to break, we got a good dose of history. Now, Pastor uh-huh. Cleland, I know that you're you're a history. I'm. What's the word? A history nerd. nerd. Let's just okay. say that. Uh-huh. Yeah, That's but I, I'm also into like legends, and I, I've always been intrigued with this distinction between history and legend, and how those things kind of overlap at time. And Valentine seems like one of those figures where it's hard to separate the two, and yet we commemorate him on Valentine's Day. What what lessons can we learn from him? Why do we commemorate him even when we don't understand that much? And is there anything to take away from the legends themselves? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. And I had a friend, Tom Oden, who wrote a book about kind of the, what he called the African memory of Mark, for instance. And one of the things he tried to do in that book was uh, to take seriously the the legends, the hagiography that, that surrounds these saints because they have survived so long. And so shall we say the culture and life of these people, and they've, they've even shaped the life of the church, even liturgy and things like that. So I'm as a historian, I have to say, well, there's not much we can know for certain because the texts are ambiguous or even probably a lot of them have these accretions that occurred over time. But I, the other side of me says, I think we do have to take these, these traditions seriously in the sense that they really did shape the faith and life of the people. And it is, and it, it's kind of this idea that where you find a tradition, there's probably also a shred of truth in it too. You know, it's not just simply, let's just go make stuff up. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it has to kind of fit in with the life of the people too. So like, let's take St. Valentine, for instance. There are there are kind of different traditions as to what, what happened that got him associated with kind of the thing that we call today Valentine. So for instance, there was one we were talking about over the break about kind of this idea that you have a Chaucer's 14th century poem, right? Where he, he links Valentine's Day with kind of the, the, the period when birds mate. And so right. the fact that you even see on some of the Valentines, you got little birds, you know, or cherubs and things like that, that could be one possibility. But then you kind of wonder, well, where did Chaucer get this idea? One of the traditions that I had read about that would have been 
in the third century, actually, was, and it's similar to how we talk about Christmas sometimes, this idea that in the third century, Romans had this pagan festival in mid-February. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it was out of February of Juno. And uh, this was a kind of bizarre festival because, and it, it does kind of fit with how <laughs> I suppose we celebrate Valentine's Day today and at least the, the popular media and things like that. Because um, actually in this festival, there was a practice where the boys would draw girls' names, you know, from a cat uh-huh. kind of thing, right? And then whichever uh, name they drew, they would, let's just put it this way, they would take them out on a date <laughs> and then who knows where it would go from there. But with the Roman kind of celebrations, if you've ever uh, looked at the, uh, graffiti in Pompeii of an earlier period, you recognize that right. it, it could get rather racy, shall we say. Okay. So then the, the question is, well, or the connection is that, well, if you have this martyr who was martyred right around that time of February, February 14th, 269, perhaps what the Christians did then is look for a way to combat that that kind of cultural well, what do you want to call it? Cultural. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't something they wanted to observe. Right. So they had, right. they offered kind of a counterbalance to it. And I suppose um, one of the possibilities is that they took then the saint uh, who had been martyred for his faith and they took one of the legends, for instance, when he was in prison, he was taken care of by the jailer and the jailer's daughter, actually, so that on the day before he was going to be martyred, he wrote her a note and this note, he signed your Valentine. And that kind of then gets taken over by the church to say, let's look at this kind of pagan festival that's there and let's um, offer a, an alternative narrative where we've got instead of, instead of celebrating kind of the cultural ideas about sex and, you know, everything else. Let's take this and look at the beautiful love that can be expressed between two people. And then you've you've got the tradition coupled with that, that he was marrying these couples kind of in private. Well, you can kind of see that now it kind of develops into the the thing that we celebrate today. I mean, does that, do you follow my reasoning with that? Yeah. 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 It makes sense. It does. And it's kind of, it's similar to, to Christmas and some other holidays where there's this buying back of some of the, the pagan traditions or, or pagan uh, calendar or whatever, and, and almost a way of using that and pointing towards something greater, that being Christ. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing. You could see somebody like uh, Cyril of Alexandria, for instance, he would take, there was this famous place where um, the supposed healings took place. Well, he decided to take two saints' relics there and, and plant them there, kind of to combat the, the pagan uh, you know, worship that was going on, and he showed that Christianity was stronger. You know, I mean, so these kinds of battles with the culture were going on, and definitely in the fourth and fifth centuries, when a lot of these um, martyrologies and things got that got written. So I don't, I don't see it as that far of a stretch, but I will fully admit that it's speculation <laughs> on my part. <laughs> what, if anything, would you say we can learn from the example of Valentine? Yeah. Boy, when I look at these martyr stories, they're so powerful. The fact that you've got somebody who, you know, and I think about some of the things that are happening today in the church, like we heard about the Finn, the church in Finland, you know, that they were making um, some stances on human sexuality that got uh, these bishops, they got him on trial, actually. And so you have these same kind of things happening in the third century. And I think I think one of the things we learn is that this isn't the church's first rodeo, shall we say, in dealing with some of the cultural antagonism that's starting to happen. And that you look at somebody like Valentine and you see somebody who was willing to be faithful, as I said, unto death and receive that crown of life. And these martyr stories were written 
written for a reason, and it was it was it was to show people that there are heroes of the faith uh, that we can imitate today. And when you're challenged, perhaps for being faithful to your faith, you can look to these heroes of the faith, and as Hebrews says, imitate them. And Paul says, imitate me. I mean, you have these these kind of exhortations in Scripture that tell us to look to these these um, heroes of the faith and recognize that. There are some things that are worth taking a stand on and even perhaps, hopefully not, but giving up your life for. Great. So you, I have a random question. You used a term earlier that I think would be good to unpack for our listeners and maybe for me. I know what it means, but if you could explain. <laughs> I was going to say the exact same thing. I'm sure that somebody listening didn't know what it was. Yeah, not I, me. Absolutely. I, I know what it means. <laughs> Hagiography. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, that's yeah. that's why I get to teach at seminary. I use those terms. So that's what got me my position. Uh, well, hagiographa comes from uh, two Greek words, hagia meaning holy and graphe meaning writing. So uh, these are, are traditions that are written down, but they initially were transferred orally and passed on from generation to generation. So, for instance, I taught in Egypt for a while, and you'd talk to these monks, and they would... When I was in Alexandria, they could show you the places where Mark was martyred, where this or that happened. Or they could take you, if you're all going out um, into the desert, here's the different places where Jesus stayed, his right, family. Right. And and frankly, if Jesus stayed at every one of those places, they would have had to be there 10 years. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it was it just seemed like it was more places than um, could be humanly possible. But but so when I talk hagiography, I'm, I'm talking about kind of that that oral history that then gets written down that is about the holy lives of the saints, really, though, too. I mean, it, the, the Hagia there does have the idea of the lives of the saints, and that these are um, treasured kind of aspects of a liturgical and devotional life that, that kind of loom large, I suppose, in many of these societies and cultures of the church. Does that mm-hmm. uh, help out? That helps out a lot. If someone wanted to learn more about hagiography, what source— should they go to first? Well, you know, I mean, I do like Tom's book, uh, The African <laughs> Memory of Mark, but there is this kind of that I have in my library. Uh, it's called The Dictionary of Saints by uh, John Delaney. That's a okay. that's a text that'll give you kind of short summaries of these different saints that are in the life of the church. And I suppose you read something like, oh, Eusebius's history at points has, he'll, he'll describe uh, certain saints of the church too, and some of the martyrs even, he's got his martyrology that's there. There's Butler's Lives of the Saints too. Um, those are just some places you could go. And I think uh, William Whedon actually had a text too that he did. If I'm, I'm trying to remember what it was. I don't have it right here at my disposal, but I'd recommend that too. I believe it's celebrating the saints. Or you could just take a class with Dr. Olowski. I I should do that before I leave the seminary. Yeah. (laughs) Dr. Olowski, thanks so much for spending some time with us this morning and helping us dig into the history of Valentine. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Pastor James Cleland. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere.